A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. Uh, homebound today, my colleague Tom Knighton is uh, off, so rather than make the commute back and forth to Farmville, waste some time, I want to spend more time in front of my keyboard today, typing up stories, making sure you've got all the latest segment news and information that you need to know about. Uh, and before I get to today's big topic here on the show, I also want to let you know about a, a big special we've got going on right now. Uh, I want to thank all of our VIP members. You guys are incredibly supportive of the work that we're doing here at Bearing Arms. Uh, and we want to say thanks. We've got a, a special deal right now, 40% off of your VIP membership. If you go to bearingarms.com slash subscribe, use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, all one word, GUNRIGHTS, you'll get 40% off of your VIP membership. And that's also going to give you exclusive analysis, commentary, news stories you're not going to get anywhere else. Uh, and again, it is our way of saying thank you for you showing your support for the work we're doing here. Now, of course, one of the things we've been talking a lot about uh, in recent weeks is the Supreme Court case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, case dealing with New York's carry laws, the uh, subjective and arbitrary may issue system that's in place. So uh, depending on where you live, you know, your sheriff or the uh, county judge may may believe that you have a right to carry a firearm in self-defense because he can read the Constitution. She, she can look there and say, all right, right to keep, right to bear, there it is, shall not be infringed, you're good to go. Or you might live in, you know, New York City, uh, where the policy is basically, no, you can't carry a firearm for self-defense unless you're rich or powerful or politically well-connected. Or maybe you live in a place where it's, in, it's entirely random, like Rensselaer County, where there are some judges who say, yep, it's your Second Amendment right to bear arms in self-defense, and there are other judges who say, no, that's absurd. You don't have a right to carry a firearm. What are you kidding? Get out of here. That was the uh, experience with Robert Nash, one of the uh, plaintiffs in this case we spoke to here on Bearing Arms. Uh, and it, I think, is at the heart of the Supreme Court's uh, 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 issue here. Can you treat a right like a privilege? I would argue the answer is no. And I hope that the Supreme Court's going to see it that way. But one of the most powerful briefs that came into the Supreme Court, one of the most powerful arguments to overturn New York's existing carry regime, came from a group of public defenders in New York City and in the surrounding area who wrote firsthand about the experience of their clients and the damage that is done by New York's gun control laws, particularly their carry laws. Because in New York, if you're caught carrying a farm without a license, it's not a misdemeanor offense. It's a felony offense. Not only is it a felony offense, it is considered a violent felony in the state of New York to simply carry a firearm without a government-issued permission slip that, frankly, the average person cannot receive. And this uh, a brief by the uh, public defenders just absolutely eviscerated New York's argument. And I'm glad to see that it's getting some attention there's a uh, website. I got to uh, give a big shout out to my uh, friend Charlie Monsanto on uh, Twitter for letting me know about this. Uh, a website called Inquest, a decarceral brainstorm. So this is a website. I, I would think from the left hand uh, side of the political spectrum, uh, interested in looking at criminal justice reform issues. Uh, you know, a decarceral brainstorm would be how do we figure out a way to have more public safety and fewer people behind bars. Well, I think one 
big way to do that is to quit criminalizing our constitutional rights. And that is the argument that these public defenders lay out in a uh, very lengthy interview with the uh, the authors of this brief, uh, Avinash Samarth, Michael Thomas, and Christopher Smith, the uh, editors of Inquest, really get into why these public defenders decided to get involved in this case and what they've seen with New York City's gun laws. And I got to tell you, it's fascinating. I Again, I, I'm not of the political persuasion of these public defenders, but I don't disagree with anything that they're saying about the way New York's laws impact particularly uh, minorities and lower-income residents there in the state. So uh, there are a couple of quotes that I want to do uh, to highlight, uh, including this one from Michael Thomas describing how they decided to get involved here. Uh, and he says, uh, it, it really took off because our colleague Christopher Smith had gone down to Texas and observed firsthand just how commonplace it was for folks to have weapons, to have guns, and for no one to bat an eyelash. His experience directly contrasts with our experience as public defenders in New York City, where we're seeing people engage in the exact same conduct and end up on Rikers Island. These are our mostly black and brown clients who get wrapped up in the system, sent to Rikers, sent upstate, sent to prison over something that somewhere else, nothing would happen. Uh, Chris Smith uh, then joined in and said, yeah, Texas was really surprising to me. The culture is so different. That's when I really saw that this particular right exists in two different worlds in our country. And again, when we're talking about a constitutional right, we shouldn't see those differences. Now, look, there might be you know regional variations, time, manner, place restrictions on your First Amendment rights, or even you know your right to carry. But I, I'm glad that these public defenders got it, that this is what it looks like to exercise a right down there in the Lone Star State of Texas. New York is what it looks like when the authorities turn a right into a privilege, which is uh, something that uh, Avinash Samarth talked about as well. He said, what we're trying to do here is not limited to a Supreme Court case. We're trying to push a conversation that is not really developed at all in New York about whether or not different ways of thinking about the criminal legal system should also apply to gun possession. Here, he says, that conversation is kryptonite. Nobody wants to have it. And a lot of the people who support criminal law reform in New York have never really squarely addressed what to do with people possessing firearms for self-defense. But he says that's a huge part of New York's criminal legal system. Check this out. I want to highlight this uh, a quote here. Over a quarter of his felony caseload as a public defender consists of people possessing, not using, possessing a firearm without a license. He says it's also a disproportionately large percentage of the cases that result in people going to Rikers Island for pretrial detention, as well as a disproportionately large percentage of the cases that result in people sentenced to prison time. Yeah. And he goes on to say that uh, in New York, prosecutors uh, voluntarily dismiss about half of all the cases. They dismiss half of misdemeanor cases, half of violent felony cases. But he said... The one kind of case that almost always results in some of the worst outcomes for the accused person is unlicensed firearm possession. I mean, it sounds to me like he's saying it's it's easier and more common to see a violent, a, a truly violent felony, attempted armed robbery, carjacking, whatever. It's more commonplace to see those charges dropped by a district attorney or a prosecutor 
than simply carrying a gun without a license, something, again, that is not a crime if you're a lawful gun owner in nearly half the country that have adopted constitutional carry. Uh, many other states, you can carry openly without a license, even if you can't carry concealed without a license. Uh, and in many other states, carrying without a license is a misdemeanor offense. It is not a felony offense. It is certainly not considered a violent felony. But again, that's not how things operate in New York. Samarth also said that uh, getting involved in this case, quote, was also an opportunity to talk to a group of nine judges who have controlling authority on our courts, but who aren't all cut from the same cultural cloth as New Yorkers. He said that presents a unique opportunity for us to potentially get an outcome or a rule that we would never in a million years get anywhere close to getting in our usual practice in New York City. I thought this was really important. He said, I mean, if you mention the Second Amendment in a New York City criminal courtroom, people will literally laugh. It's totally irrelevant to the way that law is practiced here. So this was a unique opportunity to speak to a larger audience that isn't just people in New York City or people in this very small subset of the New York City legal community, and we wanted to take that opportunity. Again, think about that for a second. If you bring up your right to keep and bear arms in a New York City criminal courtroom, this public defender says you will get laughed at. But we're talking about a right. Yeah, sure, it's a right that the state of New York and the politicians in charge of the city of New York don't like. It's a right that actually they think is wrong, but it is still a right. It's found right there in the Bill of Rights, number two. And despite the uh, protests of gun control activists, the history of the United States really is a history that has been moving in one direction, sometimes slowly, sometimes a little quicker. But we have been moving over the decades towards full recognition of the right to keep and bear arms. At the time this country was founded, really it was, you know, white men uh, between, what, the ages of 17 and 45 who were uh, uh, considered the people who could bear arms. But as this nation has grown, as the uh, definition of, of who not only an American citizen is, but who a person is, who the people are. Our right to keep and bear arms has correspondingly expanded. And you can go back and you can look at the debates over the ratification of the 14th Amendment to find that, uh, you know, look, they, they were very concerned about the individual right to keep and bear arms and freed slaves being deprived of that right, their lives put at risk uh, in these uh, uh, former slave-owning states with the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, with the rise of uh, uh, white militias who were intent on subjugating and depriving uh, newly enfranchised blacks, not only of the right to vote, but of the right to live in peace, that was a huge concern in the 1860s. It was a huge concern of activists like uh, Ida Wells uh, in the 1880s, in the 1890s. You saw individual gun ownership, in fact, the, the right to own a Winchester repeating rifle, the AR-15 of its time as a safeguard uh, against lynching and against, uh, uh, you know, attacks on uh, individuals because of the color of their skin or uh, their, 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 their personal creed, their belief in equality. And we have gotten to a point now in this country where it is the gun control lobby that are still bitterly clinging to these Jim Crow-era gun laws, like uh, North Carolina's pistol purchase permit, 
or or New York's Sullivan Act, uh, which was also brought up uh, by these uh, attorneys who noted the history uh, of, of how New York's May issue regime came to be. Now, Samar says that with respect to the legal arguments in this case, under whatever level of scrutiny the court wants to use, what's happening in New York cannot possibly be consistent with a constitutional right. Plain and simple. He says there are no other constitutional rights for which the government gets to decide in its own discretion whether you get to exercise it at all. Even rights that might create challenges or even cause harm like free speech, it is your right. But he went on to say, for some reason with the Second Amendment, New York has total discretion over whether you can possess a firearm at all, anywhere. And one of the problems that one would expect with that kind of discretion, in fact, exists in New York City. The New York Police Department is the institution that gets to decide whether you can lawfully possess a firearm. And so the decision of whether you have a constitutional right is left to the unfettered discretion of an incredibly biased police organization, which he says seems problematic to say the least. He says, unsurprisingly, the result of this structure is a bunch of people on Staten Island, where a lot of police officers live, have firearm licenses, and few other people do. Police officers are able to easily get a firearm license after they retire, and in fact, he says, as a matter of course, they get something called a good guy letter, so they can breeze through the application process with pre-approval of being what they call a good guy. None of this can possibly be consistent with a constitutional right generally held by everyone. And again, Samarth is right. I would, you know, he also, I didn't highlight this quote, but um, the amicus brief filed on the part of these public defenders also gets into the corruption that is fueled by these May issue laws. The New York Police Department had a huge licensing scandal just a, uh, a couple of years ago where members of the New York Police Department Licensing Bureau were taking bribes, thousands, in some cases, tens of thousands of dollars in cash and prizes in exchange for uh, greasing the wheels and uh, moving applications up to the front of the line, rubber stamping them with approval. When you take away that subjective authority and that subjective power on the part of uh, uh, you know, the institutions like the New York Police Department or a, a county sheriff or a, a county judge, and you adopt a shall-issue system, you are removing the opportunity for graft and corruption. Because it really doesn't exist. You meet the statutory requirements, you get your license. So you don't need to try to slip somebody some cash under the table. It doesn't do any good. There's no point to it. And there's also no point in a police officer demanding that cash be slipped under the table in exchange for uh, moving your application to the top of the list or, uh, you know, giving it the uh, seal of approval. A shall-issue system is a more fair and just system to ensure that people's rights are not treated like privileges, that they are not locked away and doled out only to a chosen few but in fact uh, are treated like the rights that they are, something that uh, we all as American citizens start out with. Now look, we can lose our rights, but we start out with these rights. And in New York, you don't. In New York, you start out not having the right to keep arms, not having the right to bear them. Nobody gets to do that unless you get to prove your worthiness uh, to the state of New York. 
And as these public defenders correctly point out, that's simply not how you treat a right. And I think that's why ultimately New York is in real trouble here with this case. I know that there are uh, some folks who are squeamish about, you know, the thought of, oh, my God, it's New York City. Can you imagine a city of 10 million people so densely packed in? And now you got people running around carrying guns in self-defense. My God, it's going to be awful. It's really not. Yeah, I heard the same argument when D.C.'s handgun ban was struck down, when Chicago's uh, handgun ban was struck down, when Illinois adopted chalice you concealed carry, when Washington, D.C. decided not to appeal a court decision that threw out its own good cause requirement. We've heard the doom and gloom from the gun control activists, frankly, for decades. And it doesn't matter if crime's rising or if crime's falling. The argument uh, is always the same for them. More guns equals more crime even when that's not the case. But I would argue that even if that were the case, it still doesn't justify stripping American citizens of their right to keep and bear arms uh, on the argument that, well, we're going to be a safer society. Again, that's not how our rights work. And I feel pretty confident that the uh, Supreme Court is going to see it our way see it the same way as these uh, public defenders do. I, uh, I'm actually very curious to see uh, if their uh, amicus brief gets cited by the Supreme Court. Maybe the better question is how many times uh, these public defenders' briefs get uh, cited by the Supreme Court. But uh, there you go. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a link to the entire interview. We didn't have time to get to uh, all of the quotes from these public defenders. I would encourage you to check it out. Uh, when you've got a couple minutes, because it really, really is, um, it, it's, it's unexpected. I mean, you don't expect to see these types of attitudes from New York attorneys. And it was really eye-opening uh, to see the perspective of these public defenders who, who, who fundamentally understand the importance of these issues here, because they see every day the injustice that is done to their clients by sending them to prison for possessing a firearm without a permit that they have no chance of getting. All right, listen, we're going to leave it there. We'll uh, pick it up tomorrow with our armed citizen story, our uh, good deed of the day, our recidivist report as well. Uh, but I uh, do appreciate you tuning into the program today for the special circumstances here. Look forward to talking to you again tomorrow. Also, don't forget, for our VIP Gold members, we were just talking about that VIP uh, membership discount, 40% off if you use the promo code GUNRIGHTS at barryandarms.com slash subscribe. But if you become a VIP Gold member, which gets you VIP access to all of the Town Hall Media family of websites, you can hang out with myself and Hot Air's Ed Morrissey coming up tomorrow, 1.30 Eastern, for our weekly VIP Gold live chats, one of my favorite hours of the week. Hope we get a chance to see you there. Thanks for tuning in today. Until we talk again, be well, be safe and be free.